Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to read this morning from verse 16 to verse 29. 16 to 29. Verse 16. And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said unto him, Which? Jesus said, You shall do no murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, Truly I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Truly I say unto you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, once again, Lord, as we turn our minds and our thoughts to your word and to the words of your Son. We ask, Father, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you'd give us ears to hear and minds to understand, that you'd help us see that we're listening to words that are spirit in life and that we're listening to your very words and not the words of man. Help us to resist the temptation to think that we're just hearing from men. Help us to hear from you, Lord, and realize that you speak to us, each one, individually, through your word, through your Son. Lord, help us to hear what you would have us hear from this very important passage this morning. That you would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we come now in the Gospel of Matthew to a very famous, memorable, 
and perplexing story in the life of Jesus, the story of the rich young ruler. Now, it's called the story of the rich young ruler because when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, we can draw a fuller picture that the man that came to Jesus was a rich young ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. And what that means is it shows the importance of this story. Certainly everything that's recorded in the Bible is important, but the fact that the three gospel writers, the three synoptics record this one, shows what an imprint this event took, uh, made in the disciples' minds. The disciples who followed Jesus would have told this story often because it's so memorable. Usually when something is memorable, it's because it's unique or it made a great impact. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die. He's left Galilee where most of his ministry has taken place and he's on the road to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us that when he was on the way to Jerusalem that one man, and Mark tells us something that Matthew doesn't tell us, comes running up to Jesus and falls down kneeling before him. So here's a detail that's important that Matthew uh, doesn't record. The man runs to Jesus in earnest and gets on his knees. Matthew tells us in verse 16, behold or look, something very significant is happening. Something worth telling is about to happen. So let's draw our minds to listen and to see what happens. Luke tells us he's a ruler. So he's not just some average guy. He's a ruler. He's young, probably in his 20s, because he's not a youth. He says he mentions his youth. He's no longer a youth, but he's old enough to rule. So it's likely that he's probably in his 20s. He comes running and kneeling to Jesus. Now here's something we need to note. First of all, there is no reason to doubt the sincerity of the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, running and kneeling and asking him what he needs to do in order to have eternal life, we are not to doubt his sincerity. He's not coming to Jesus to challenge him. There's no challenge here. This isn't a challenging question. Uh, it's not a question designed to try to catch Jesus in his words. Here we have a young man who's earnest about his soul. That's, that's basically what we have here. He wants to know how to go to heaven. He wants to know what he has to do. How awesome would that be? Think about it. Imagine a rich, young, ruler, earnest about his soul, comes to you and asks you what he needs to do to be saved. How awesome would that be? We would all think that would be an amazing situation that God had sent him, right? We'd love for someone like this to become a believer and be saved. But I want you to notice that Jesus is always level-headed when he deals with people. Jesus doesn't get emotional. Uh, he doesn't, he's not guided by his emotions. He gets emotional, but he's not just, he's not just a, oh, I'm excited about this and loses himself and forgets what's going on. Jesus is level-headed. And Jesus perceives that through the words of this man or by the words of this, this man that there's a problem. I think many of us wouldn't, wouldn't maybe we might miss that because he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, and he's asking about how to be saved. We might just get so excited about it that we don't 
realize there's a problem. The man's words betray a problem in his thinking. Here's what he asks Jesus. Now in Matthew, uh, I'm reading from the King James Bible, but modern translations will correct some of the mistakes the King James Bible makes in this particular verse, in this passage. The ruler says to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? In essence, this is what he's asking. I know. Here's something I know. I know that I have to do something good to be saved. What is it? That's, what he, that's how he's thinking. His understanding is, I know that I have to be good in order to have eternal life. So what can I do that's good that I might be good and have eternal life? What must I do to be good? And here's how Jesus answers him in verse 17. And modern translations will correct the error in the King James. The King James says that Jesus says, why do you call me good? That's not correct. In the Greek, and here's what the NIV says, because the NIV uh, does a good job of translating it. This is better. Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? So in Matthew here, Jesus is not saying, how come you're calling me good? Because in Matthew, he actually doesn't say, good master. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do? And Jesus picks up on this word good. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? I'm going to quote from the New English Bible because I think they nail the thought perfectly. From the New English Bible, here's what Jesus says in response to this question. What good thing do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, good? Why do you ask me about that? Only one is good. You see? So he says, what do I need to do to be good? And he says, why are you asking me about being good? There's only one that's good. God. You can't do anything to be good. Only God is. Isn't that clear from the Old Testament? Isn't that clear from the writings of Moses and the prophets? Shouldn't you know that you are can't be good, and so that this is a false question? We don't need to look any further, brothers and sisters, than the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that we can look in the wisdom books to see this. Psalm 14, verse 3, there is none that does good. No, not one. Most people don't believe that, right? The rich young ruler clearly didn't, because he says, what good thing do I need to do? Tell me. I know I need to be good. Tell me what I need to do. Are you going to break the mold? There's no one that does good, not even one. Are you here to break the mold? Is that what you think? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. There is not a just man on the earth that does good and sins not. There's not a just man on the earth. How come he didn't know this? this is, see, Jesus sees the problem in his thinking. The man thinks that he can be good. The man thinks that by doing good, you can be good and inherit eternal life. There's not a just man on the earth who does good and sins. Are you going to break the mold? You? You could ask yourself. Do you think that you can break the mold? Elliot? Keith? Bethany? You read those verses and say, okay, Jesus, tell me what I need to do because I'm going to rise above it and break the mold. Job chapter 15 
14 to 16. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his saints. Yes, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man who drinks in iniquity like water? Where was this verse in the thinking of the rich young ruler? Heaven is not clean in God's sight. Isn't that interesting? Heaven is not clean in God's sight. Do you think that you are going to be clean? How much more can a man not be clean if heaven is not even clean? And God doesn't put trust in his holy ones, the angels. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and you had the angels flying, and they were covering their face, and they were covering their feet, and they were saying, holy, holy, holy. Those angels probably, probably would have disintegrated into nothingness had they taken their wings away from their face. Because those angels were not able to endure God's presence. Do you think that you can break the mold? In the, old, in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, we see that when people come into contact with God, or even sometimes just an angel, people feel like they're going to die. Right? Do you think you're going to break the mold? Is there something that you can do so that when God shows up or an angel shows up, you won't feel like you're going to die? You can look that angel in the eye and say, hey, let's talk. I'm a good person. I'm a... Hey, God, let's talk. Do you think you can break the mold? Job 25, 5-9. Look to the moon, and it does not shine. Yes, the stars are not pure in God's sight. How much less man, a worm, and the son of man, a worm. Compared to God, the sun and the stars and the moon don't have any light compared to him. You see, you can never think that you are good or that you can be good, brothers and sisters, because compared to God, even heaven is unclean. If you think that you can be good, it's because you're not seeing him, right? Your, your thought of God's goodness, your thought of God's righteousness, your thought of God's holiness, your thought of God's cleanliness is very small if you think that you can do something and become a good person or become righteous. But when you see and understand who God is, then you would never ask a question like the rich young ruler asked. Jesus sees a problem in his thinking. This young man doesn't know what righteousness is. He doesn't know what goodness is. One of the masters on this very topic, John Calvin, writes in the very first chapter of his Institutes, since nothing appears within us or around us that is not tainted with very great impurity, just as we read in Job, therefore, so long as we keep our mind within the confines of human pollution, anything which is in some small degree less defiled delights us as if it were most pure. <laughs> right? So Calvin's saying, because we're surrounded by impurity, all we need to do is find something that's just a little bit less impure, and we think that's righteousness, and we think that's purity. 
Just as an eye, Calvin says, to which nothing but black has previously been presented, deems an object white or even brownish hue, or deems an object that is of a whitish or even brownish hue to be perfectly white. So if you're accustomed to seeing black, get something that's a little bit less black, and all of a sudden you think it's white. Calvin goes on to say this, But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect upon what kind of being he is, and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed. What formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust us by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. Calvin's saying, once you see what God is like, then whatever you thought was righteousness is the greatest iniquity. Isn't it interesting that when you become a Christian, maybe you can relate to this, before you were a Christian, you thought you knew what righteousness was. You thought this person is righteous, this person is good, or maybe even I'm good. But once you become a Christian, you suddenly realize what I thought was good is actually great iniquity, Right? becomes sinful and vile to even think that way. Or what you thought was wise. What do we think was wise? The rich young ruler's question. Oh, I need to be good in order to get to heaven. What can I do to be good? Okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. I can do it. Suddenly that wisdom, which everyone in the world besides Christians thinks is very wise, becomes extreme folly, Calvin says. That's ridiculous and stupid. And what appears to be virtuous energy is now miserable impotence. Wise words from Calvin. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what Jesus is getting at in his words to the rich young ruler. And I want to suggest to you, this is the theme of this entire passage with the rich young ruler. Jesus does not want us, or this man, to throw around the word good lightly. To use the word good when we're talking about, that is, moral goodness. He doesn't want us to throw this word around. He says, why are you talking to me about what is good? Why are you using this word? What do you think goodness is? Words are valuable. Words are meaningful. How do you use the word good? How do you use the word righteous? I would hope that as a Christian, you are more careful about calling a person good. Do you ever catch yourself as a Christian saying, this guy's so good, then you go, oh, I don't really mean he's you know what I mean, <laughs> right? I hope as a Christian we don't take the words good or righteous or holy lightly and just throw them around. Jesus always challenged people when they used words or when they talked about him. Sometimes they would say, someone would ask him, are you the king of the Jews? He'd say, are you telling me that or are you just saying that because someone told you? You know, he wants you to use words with meaning, not just throw words around. If you're going to use those words, understand them. Charles Urban writes, The thoughtless use of the word good is an index to one's superficial view of goodness. Now, the young man didn't grasp this, what we've been discussing. The young man didn't understand what goodness or righteousness was, and therefore he thought that he could do something to be good. He should have known from the Old Testament, and he didn't. 
And so now Jesus is going to show him. What does Jesus say? Verse 17, second part. If you want to enter into life, so now he's going to answer his question. What, do, what good thing do I need to do in order to enter life? Jesus says, okay. If you want to enter into life, it's really rather simple. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. That is a clear, direct, and unmistakable statement, brothers and sisters. And we're not supposed to twist this and make Jesus, try to make Jesus saying something that, other than what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. That's what you need to do. And if you want to know what the commandments are, verse 18 and 19, he gives you a sample of them. He takes it straight out of the Law of Moses, straight out of the Ten Commandments, although, except for the last one, which comes out of Leviticus. Do, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Clear, direct, unmistakable. That's what you need to do in order to be saved. Is Jesus lying to him? Because as Christians, we say, hey, hold on a second, that's not what the gospel is, right? As Christians, we say, that's not what I would tell someone. Jesus was not lying to him because it's absolutely true. If you keep the commandments, you'll have eternal life. That's an absolutely true statement, and there's no lie here. The only thing is, this is not all that can be said about inheriting eternal life, right? It's a true statement. If you obey the law of Moses and keep the commandments, you'll have eternal life. That's true. But there's more to be said. I remember once talking with an uh, LDS Institute teacher about this very thing. He brought it up. We were talking about grace and works. We were talking about salvation being by grace and not by what you do. And he brought this up. He said, well, then why did Jesus say that to enter into life, you have to keep the commandments? He brought it up. So he's thinking that that's how, it, that's how he's trying to defend Mormonism and the idea that you have to keep the commandments to be saved. And so he brings Jesus up. And I said, that's true. Jesus wasn't lying at all. I told the institute teacher, I said, Jesus wasn't lying at all. It, that's, that is true. If you keep the commandments, you'll be saved. But that's not all that Jesus ever said about eternal life, Right? That's not all that can be said about how to get to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and the apostles also taught that no one does that. And they also taught that by simple faith you inherit eternal life, right? So no, I said, Jesus is not lying here. And the institute teacher actually was kind of taken back and says, oh. Like he, it was a new thought for him. He said, oh, I never thought of that. <clears throat> Notice how the law to Jesus is all ethical. What I mean is it's not ritualistic. When Jesus thinks about the law of God, he's not thinking of, uh, primarily about animal sacrifices and priesthood garments and things like that. Now, unfortunately, I think that's common for people when they think law of Moses or law of God, they immediately think ceremonial stuff, but not moral stuff. No, the ceremonial stuff that's done away with in Christ. But you still got to keep the moral stuff in order to be saved. But that's not how it is to Jesus or the apostles or the prophets or even to Moses himself. If you want to understand the law of God, you need to think about it primarily in terms of ethics or primarily in terms of morality and doing good, not murdering, not stealing, but more precisely, 
Not just the negative commands, but the positive commands. Honoring your father and mother and loving your neighbor. This is what Jesus sees as law-keeping or commandment-keeping. It's all about loving your neighbor. Right? Adultery and murder, that all has to do with love or not loving. Jesus said all the commandments could be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And so he includes that here at the end of verse 19. Kind of, he's giving a bit of a sampling and he just throws out the big one. Just love your neighbor. <laughs> just love your neighbor. That's all you need to do. In this way, Jesus is perfectly in line with the prophets of the Old Testament who are always telling the people of Israel, God doesn't want your sacrifices. If you want to be presentable and acceptable to God, forget just doing festivals. Help the poor. Love your neighbor. Relieve the oppressed. So Jesus is, is not bringing anything new here but standing firmly in the line of Moses and the prophets. Now in verse 20, the, man's, the, the, the next thing that the man says again betrays a problem. So the first thing he said betrayed a problem. He's thinking that he can be good. He's not seeing the righteousness of God. In verse 20, the man's words again betray a problem. And here's what he said. The young man says to Jesus, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Now, I'm not saying this man is insincere, right? He's sincerely seeking salvation for his soul. But his words betray a problem. This young man is not grasping the moral magnitude of the commandments of God, right? God gives the commandments to love your neighbor, and he thinks he did it. He sincerely thinks he did it. He's not grasping how deep, how full are these commandments, what they mean. And yet, we also see in verse 20 that the rich young ruler himself sensed that there was a problem, right? He says, what do I lack? You see, brothers and sisters, the rich young ruler represents the sincere religious man who naively thinks that he is good or that he can be good. And yet, deep down, people who are like that, they know something is wrong, right? Now, he's sincere, and he really thinks he's doing it, but he knows deep down something is wrong. Something's not fitting. I'm doing all the right things. What am I missing? I'm doing what I'm, what I'm supposed to do, right? But I still feel there's a lack. I still feel like something is not, there's a puzzle piece missing and something is not quite clicking. He doesn't realize that it's his ignorance of what good is. He thinks he's good and he doesn't even know what goodness is. I'm doing everything right. Think about this. He's a rich, he's a young man, he's got youth, most people want that. He's rich, he's a ruler. He thinks he's obedient to the commandments. He's doing all these things, but he doesn't have life. Because, brothers and sisters, the only thing that can give you life, peace, joy, and relationship with God, is the truth of Jesus Christ. Right? Being rich, so if, you're, if you were rich, and if you were young, and if you were ruling, and if you were 
so-called, or you thought you were obedient to the commandments. You pretty much have everything that the world says would make you happy or joyful or peace or accepted with God, right? You've got it all. You even, you even think you've obeyed. And the man knows something is not right because he doesn't know the truth of God. Because only Jesus Christ can make you right with God and give you peace. The beautiful thing is you don't have to be young, you don't have to be rich, you don't have to be a ruler, and you don't even have to be obedient to the commandments and you can have joy and peace in relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> He's got everything and nothing. And Jesus, for his benefit, is going to pop his little bubble and show him what obedience to the law really is so that he might see what goodness and righteousness really is so we can see that he has nothing. Jesus, it says in Mark, looks at him and loves him. What Jesus is about to do may seem shocking and rude. And yet, right before he does it, the Bible takes care to say that Jesus loved him. And then he decapi decapitates him. Okay? <laughs> Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, Mark tells us there's one thing you lack. If you want to be perfect, what we see here is that Jesus is explicitly telling us if you want to have eternal life, you have to be perfect and you are not to lack anything. Not one thing. You can have it all. You lack one thing. You will not have eternal life. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. Because God requires perfection, and let me emphasize that, God requires perfection. You cannot go to the kingdom of God unless you're perfect and lack nothing. And because God requires perfection, here's the truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Apostle Paul tells us, states the obvious. You don't have to go to Romans to learn that, but it's there. <laughs> All have sinned and fall short is the same word as lack here in this text. Jesus knew that he was a sinner and he needed to see this. So he hits him where it hurts. You think you keep the commandments. You just told me you keep the commandments. So, tell me, what's that big ring on your finger? <clears throat> right? <laughs> nice clothes. You care about your neighbor. Well, I have a friend who... Uh, his family is, you know, starving, and they're on the brink of death. I have a friend, you know, you really care about people. Here's what you should do. No, here's not what you should do. Here's what you need to do if you want to be perfect and lack nothing and inherit eternal life. Sell it all and give it to the poor. Just sell it all and give it to the poor. You see, in Jesus' day, Private giving was the only kind of assistance that people had. There was no government assistance. No such thing. And so giving to the poor was not like, it's not like today giving to beggars. It's like today giving to charity. Okay? People are truly in need. There is no government assistance. And the only way people are helped is by private people giving money to the poor. 
And he, what he's saying is, okay, there's a lot of need going on. There's not just people who are begging for money to do drugs. If you care about people, give your money to the poor. All of it. Because you're pretty wealthy. And you could do a lot of good. If you had love in your heart, that's what you'd do. Because love is not a quantifiable thing. You can't say, well, yesterday I did X, Y, and Z 15 times. Love is a quality, and when you have that quality in your heart, and you see someone in need, and you love them, then you'll help them if you're able to help them. And you're able to help them, because you're a pretty wealthy guy. Jesus says, if you do this, you'll have treasure in heaven. The treasure in heaven is contrasting, contrasted with his earthly riches. The rich young man was, was rich, earthly speaking, but he was poor, heavenly speaking. I don't believe treasures in heaven here is referring to rewards in heaven, but eternal life itself. You are rich down here. You've got nothing spiritually. Give all your, if you want to be good, like you're asking, and you want to have eternal life, then give all your earthly riches away, and then you'll have, then you'll be rich spiritually. Then you'll have eternal life. See, Jesus already had taught on the Sermon on the Mount that you are not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Don't don't spend your energy to get things on earth which is just going to be taken away because where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you treasure is where your heart is going to be. Rather, set your affection on things above. And if you really want life according to the law and according to the commandments, then what you need to do is give it all away. Now when Jesus says, follow me, in verse 21, I don't believe for a moment that he's, that he's sharing with him the gospel. He's saying, if you want to be saved, give away all your money and believe in me to be saved. Follow me is not to be saved. But because you are saved, since you give away all your money, if, if you were to give away all your money to the poor, you would have treasure in heaven. You would have eternal life. You would be saved. What should you do after that? Well, come follow me. Join the group. He's not sharing the gospel with him here. But he's aggressively applying the law. And he gives him an ultimatum. And I, brothers and sisters, I don't think we realize how intense this is. This is more intense than we can imagine. Because he's telling him, if you want to have eternal life, you need to sell all your money, sell all your goods, and give all your money away to the poor. That's pressure. He's not saying this is a good idea. He's not saying, let me give you some good advice on how to just be a nice person. He's saying, you want your soul to be saved? Here's what you need to do. Imagine the pressure. Because now the man, according to Jesus, is in a situation where if he keeps his money, he's damned. He's lost. He's going to not enter the kingdom of God if he doesn't give away all his goods. And that's why in verse 22, and we miss this in the English, the Greek words literally convey this, that the young man was surrounded by distress and dark clouds of doom came over him. That's what the Greek indicates. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Greek words that are using, he's surrounded by distress and dark clouds of doom come over the rich young ruler. It's not just, oh, he goes away sorrowful because he doesn't want to give away. This man's soul is at stake. That's what he asked, right? I need salvation. What do I need to do? Give all your goods away. 
Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine if someone told you that? Brothers and sisters, this man went away in despair. His, it might have been sunny that day. It was not sunny in the mind of that man. Jesus made someone intensely distressed, and he did it in love. Because the young man's eye was dark or evil, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, when, you, when your treasure is set on things on earth, your eye is sick. What that means is you can't see. You can't see correctly. What you think is valuable isn't truly valuable. Your riches have blinded you. All the warnings in the Bible about money have to do not with money itself, but with what money does to your eye. When you become covetous, or when you begin to trust in money as if that is your ultimate security and salvation or joy, the love of money is then the root of all evil, not money itself. One scholar writes this, the difficulty with wealth lies not in its possession. Many righteous men in scripture had wealth. Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. But the difficulty with wealth lies in the false trust it inspires. Remember, Job lost everything. Job had a lot of money, and he lost it all. And he praised God because he didn't have an evil eye. Your material possessions can become more important than spiritual possession or spiritual things or eternal life. That's why Jesus says in verse 23 and 24, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He even says it stronger in verse 24. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There's kind of a, an idea floating around in the church that the eye of the needle was some gate in the Middle East that camels could go through if they struggled a bit. That is just simply not true. When Jesus said a camel going through the eye of a needle, he literally meant a camel going through an eye of a needle. And the point is, it's impossible. And he's saying it's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to give away his money and love his neighbor. That's harsh, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, all he's saying is rich men don't love their neighbor. Right? True or false? And therefore... They won't be saved. This was the young man's state, and he wasn't aware of it because he came up to Jesus saying, I've kept all the commandments. I do that, right? I still feel like I'm lacking them, but I do love my neighbor, right? He needed to be aware. He needed despair. He needed distress. He needed gloom. And brothers and sisters, God, in order to bring you to salvation, he may in fact have to bring you into damnation. <laughs> right? In fact, he does need to do that. He kills you first, and then he makes you alive. In order for you to be saved, you need to realize you need to be saved. And in order to realize you need to be saved, that requires despair and gloom and distress. If you ever find yourself in gloom or distress, perhaps it's God. Sometimes people say, oh, that's just the devil. Only the devil would make you feel bad. How do you know that God doesn't want to... Jesus made someone feel bad. Jesus brought dark clouds of doom over a man. 
don't just attribute everything to the devil. Maybe God is trying to speak to you the most profound thing that you've ever heard. Maybe God is doing you the best thing in the whole world for you by taking away your sunlight, by taking away hope in yourself. And he does it because he loves you. I went through a crisis in my own life like that. And now in retrospect, I praise God because it was an act of his love, even though at the time I thought he was abandoning me. God killed me, but he was making me alive. God's ways are wonderful. He does this so that we might be saved. Brothers and sisters, let me challenge anyone here. If you have hope in yourself, if you think you are good or can be good, then maybe you need a healthy dose of despair and gloom from God. But let me encourage you, if you're struggling with a sense of sin and despair and that you're going to be damned, the good news is that one only needs to look up and see what God has provided for you, a sinner, in Jesus Christ. You see, in verse 25, the disciples apply the problem to all, don't they? They're shocked by this. This is outside of, Jesus just said, rich men won't go to heaven because they don't love their neighbor. That's radical. Most people don't think that way. Most people think that rich people are blessed by God. The disciples apply the problem to all because the problem here is perfection, not merely riches. See, they're not just, they said, who then can be saved? No one can be saved. They're looking past now just rich men to what Jesus has been teaching about perfection. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you can't lack one thing. You've got to be perfect. Now, how many people here are rich? Not many. How many are perfect? None. Being poor doesn't make you perfect either. The problem is perfect love. And the disciples see it. Who then can be saved? They're asking Jesus a sincere question. Hold on, Jesus, it sounds like no one's going to be saved. And Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit of God says, bingo, right? That's the point. <laughs> That's the point of the law. I hear it all the time on campus. Well, hold on then. When everyone's just going to hell, you got it. And they're like, that, that's the point of the law. The law's point is to show you that you can't be saved by it. Shows you what the disciples were thinking at that time. But brothers and sisters, just because you can't save yourself, just because you can't pull your bootstraps up and obey the commands and be saved and have eternal life, just because rich men have an evil eye and don't love their neighbor, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is God's hand not long enough and strong enough to save sinners? And this is the point in verse 26. And brothers and sisters, the main point. It says in verse 26, before, it's, before Jesus' words are given, it says that he beholds them. This shows the importance of what he's about to say. Jesus looks at the disciples right after they said, who can be saved? And he looks him straight in the eye and he solemnly says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Right? This is impossible for man. Jesus tells you it's impossible for you to be saved. Just like he said, it's impossible for rich people to be saved. It's impossible for poor people to be saved. It's impossible for man to be saved. 
for a man to save himself. Possible. Not going to happen. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for you to go to heaven. Based on the law. When you think about being saved based upon obedience to the commandments, think about camels going through needles. Okay? That's what it's like. But what is impossible with man, with God, all things are possible. God has provided a way. And this is what the gospel is all about. Okay? The gospel is not about Jesus kicking you from behind, trying to squeeze you through a needle. Okay? The gospel is not about Jesus making the needle hole bigger <laughs> so that you can fit. People think that, right? Hole's too small. Let's make it a little bit bigger. The gospel is all about the power of God to save sinners and to do what's impossible, right? Because if Jesus made the hole big enough for us to get through, there's nothing now impossible about you being saved. The gospel is about God's power to save those who can't be saved based upon the law. Do you realize that that is your case without Christ? You are a sinner, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is not a just man on the earth that does good and sins not. Anyone here breaking the mold? How about since you become a Christian? Did you break the mold yet? And that's the point. You are a sinner who falls short. It's impossible with you. But the power of God to save you is in God sending his son, Jesus, who's telling us this. See, Jesus is about to die, not long from now. These are momentous words because his cross is looming before him. And on the cross, Jesus took our sins and died for them. Jesus himself said that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is declaring that the gospel is not about you keeping commandments. It's about God sending his son and shedding his blood for your sins. That's what it's about. And it's the death of Christ that is the power to save. The cross of Christ is the power of God to save those who believe. If you do not believe in the cross, you are like a camel who will not get through the eye of a needle. You are unrighteous in God's sight and will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not perfect, you lack. But when you believe in Jesus and his blood that was shed on the cross covers your sin and forgives you of your sin, God presents you blameless before him. You are righteous in the sight of God. God does not see Christians as unrighteous. Christians are those who have gone through the eye of the needle and been saved by the power of Jesus Christ and God. And it's all because God loves you. Imagine God looking at you from heaven as an unrighteous sinner. God loved the rich young ruler, didn't he? Someone who thought he had it all and had nothing. And God loves us. God loves sinners. And his love, by his love, he brings us into despair and then he shows us himself and his mighty love and mighty power displayed at the cross. And through faith we're saved by trusting in God, just like Abraham did. Just like Abraham, that rich guy, a sinner, 
put his trust in God and in God's promise to do the impossible. That's what it is to be a Christian. Do you know that you're going to go to the kingdom of God when you die? Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know, brothers and sisters? Because you are to know that you have this. And you know it whether you're believing in God and trusting in the cross or whether you're not. And whether, or whether you're trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle through your own works. The remaining section, verse 27, 28, and 29. The remaining section is on a different level than what we've gone before. It's not about giving money to the poor anymore, and it's not about the law. Now we turn our eyes, and Peter's question and Jesus' sayings have to do with losing everything to believe in Christ as your Savior. Basically, Peter says this. Well, what's going to happen to us? We didn't give our money to the poor, nor do we love each other very much. Right? Peter's not declaring, hey, we've, we loved our neighbor. <laughs> okay? Peter's simply saying this. We didn't give our money to the poor. We didn't love each other very much. But Jesus, we've left our livelihoods. We've left our parents. We've left our wives. We've left our homes. We've incurred persecution because of you. What's going to happen to us? I mean, we don't love our neighbor. But we've lost everything. And Jesus says, whoever follows him, whoever believes in him, will be richly compensated. Basically, it is worth it to follow him and to put their faith in him. In verse 28, Jesus talks about the regeneration, or the regenesis, you could say. Maybe even more accurate in the Greek. The regenesis. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. It'll be like Genesis over again, when God makes everything new. And brothers and sisters, it is coming, according to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? In Jesus' mind, there's coming a regenesis. When Christ the Lord reigns upon the earth, and sin and death is no more. And at that time, Jesus says in verse 28 that the 12 apostles will have a special place at that time, sitting on 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. But in verse 29, Jesus gives a promise to everyone who believes in him, to everyone who loses houses, wives, family, for his name's sake, we're no longer talking about obeying the law or loving our neighbor or giving our money to the poor. Jesus presents us with a total win-win situation. Everyone that first forsaken houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, wife, children, lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall eternit, inherit eternal life. He gives us a win-win situation. Lose and gain a hundredfold plus eternal life. Notice that money and sin is not mentioned on that list. Jesus doesn't say, whoever gives all their money away to the poor and loves their neighbor as themselves and stops sinning will inherit eternal life. Because the issue here is not loving your neighbor according to the law, but the issue here is taking up your cross because of the gospel and being saved through faith in him. Because believing in Christ as we know, as we've seen already in Matthew and as we see in our own world today, believing in Christ brings with it persecution, trouble, and loss. Many people who put their faith in Christ lose their lives, 
their families, their houses. You can read about it in the Bible or read about it in history books or read about it in the newspapers today. But Jesus says that he is the way to eternal life. And if you want to be saved, then set your eye on the end. Eternal life is always set forth by Jesus as so valuable as to lose everything to obtain. Do you believe that? Do you believe that eternal life is so valuable that you ought to lose everything to obtain it? And the issue here is not resolution, but simply vision. It's not about being strong and pulling up your bootstrap and saying, I'm going to lose it all for him. It's simply a matter of seeing that eternal life is worth more than everything else. And when you see that, when your eye is good, then you will gladly take persecution and the spoiling of your goods or whatever else, whatever other affliction that may come in your way for following Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not require Christians to sell all that they have and to give it away. Christians are those who know that they're sinners and who are trusting in Christ for their salvation. We are right with God, not by what we do, but by his grace alone. If we want to give all of our money away, then we'll give all of our money away. Love is our motivation, not fear. And certainly it's good to give your money to the poor. Certainly so. But in order to inherit eternal life, that is not the way to be saved. It is simply by believing in Jesus which will bring persecution. However, for those who are not Christians and for those who do not believe in the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, let me solemnly tell you as Jesus did, if you want to be saved, then I suggest you sell everything that you have and you give it to the poor. And the longer that you delay, the worse and worse that you become. There's your ultimatum. You might die tonight. You better give away all your money to the poor and love your neighbor as you love yourself if you want to be saved by keeping commandments. You definitely have to, and you better fear and do it. Of course, I want to also tell you that you will not do it, and you will not be saved by obeying the law. Therefore, the gospel is there for you also, God loves you, even though you're a sinner. He died on the cross for your sins. Simply put your trust in him, and you shall be saved. And if you are saved this morning, then rejoice that you are saved and that it isn't by obedience, obedience to the law that you're saved. Rejoice that God in his power has saved you and that you don't have to look hopelessly at the eye of a needle. Set your eyes on your heavenly treasure that you have by grace dear brothers and sisters. If you do that, then you can endure every persecution that comes your way. You will also find love in your heart to give your money to the poor, not because you have to, but because of love. Everything that you need is simply in believing the gospel. To the new creatures belong the new creation. And at the end of this path, the end of this way of faith in Christ will be our awesome, good God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no one good but you alone. 
Help us to see your absolute, perfect righteousness and wisdom so that every other kind of wisdom and righteousness would be filthy in our eyes. Help us to see that what once was gained to us is actually dung compared to you. Lord, please, in this valley, cause many people to see this truth. As there are many sincere religious people here who are ignorant of what righteousness is, like this rich young ruler, cause a dark cloud of gloom to come over this valley, Lord. Surround people with distress, realizing that they're lost, and that if if they saw the ultimatum, they'd perish. And Lord, cause your holy name and your awesome cross to be lifted up here in this valley and draw men to it. Help men to see your amazing love that's revealed at the cross for sinners. Cause us Christians to rejoice in our salvation. We give you praise and glory, our awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.